This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Have you ever attended schools in Eton College in the United Kingdom, St. Albans in the United States, or Geelong Grammar School in Australia? Maybe you were among the lucky few to have attended one. These schools are primarily reserved for children from the most privileged families, members of the 1%, as we would say today. The schools are steeped in tradition, covered in oak and ivy, and cost a small fortune to attend. The fees at St. Albans, for instance, run as high as 58,000 US dollars per year. For that price, it's no wonder that these schools offer some of the best education money can afford and have produced some notable graduates. For instance, 19 prime ministers from the United Kingdom attended Eton. Think about that. That is such a small circle. These schools, which are found worldwide, produce and sustain social class. They have also had to adapt to changing global and local circumstances over the decades. Many started as all-boys schools, but have since become co-educational. Others were reserved for national elites to produce competent colonial administrators, but have since turned their attention to the growing market of international students. My guest today, Debbie Epstein, has been part of a research team exploring elite schools in the former British colonies from Australia to Barbados, and Hong Kong to India. The team, comprised of Jane Kenway, Johanna Fay, Debbie Epstein, Aaron Coe, Cameron McCarthy, and Fazal Rizvi, have recently co-written a book on their findings entitled Class Choreographies, Elite Schools and Globalization. Debbie, a professor of cultural studies in education at the University of Roehampton, joined me to talk about some of the major themes in the book. I should mention for full disclosure that this project holds a special place in my heart. I met my future wife, Johanna Fay, while she was collecting data for this project in Hong Kong. So please excuse my biased opinion about this excellent research. Debbie Epstein, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You have been part of a, um, a research group that has looked at elite schools across the former British Empire. I guess to start, what are elite schools? Well, we are defining elite schools in a particular way. There's so many arguments about what makes a school elite. So we're defining it as a school which is uh, locally regarded as elite which accepts a selective group of students, usually by how much fees they can pay, um, and also in some cases by how they perform in, in selection tests at the beginning. And we've been looking at schools which are in the model of the British Independent School, which in Britain we call public schools, and uh, which are at least 100 years old. And they're in seven countries, 
seven schools in seven countries, all of which, six of which are in former British colonies and one in England. And I say England advisedly because it was actually in England, not in, not in one of the other countries that's part of the United Kingdom. And um, so they've been around for a long time. They get good academic results and uh, their kids supposedly do very well in the future. That's, that's, the, that's, the, um, that's the premise on which they operate. And to a significant extent, it's, it's true they, whether they do well academically or not, they do very often get become in, to be in positions of great power, either in corporations or in government or as senior policy makers of one kind or another. So the, the alumni of those, those schools are often governors of the countries, the ruling class of the, gov of the countries in which they operate and increasingly as part of a transnational uh, ruling class, if you can call it that. So, so you said you've been looking at um, schools in the model of the, the British public school model. Can you talk a little bit about what, what is that model? Okay, so the model originally was one for boys. Uh, Eton, which isn't one of the schools we looked at, was set up under uh, the rule of King Henry VIII. Um, and they were called public at the time because they weren't attached to... Uh, a particular guild, trades guild or, or church. So they were open to the children of the aristocracy, if you like, um, and to wealthy merchants and, and so on and so forth. So they're usually boarding schools, um, although not all of them are, are boarding schools completely. And they have a tradition of, uh, the boys' schools have a tradition of particularly sports and a sort of liberal classical entertainment, uh, education, not entertainment. Um, so, uh, you know, classics, languages, history, and until fairly recently, when I say fairly recently, the last 100, 150 years, less, less emphasis on sciences, maths, and so on. So the girls' schools came later than that. Um, the oldest of the girls' public schools um, were founded in the mid-19th century. So, um, and... They, in some ways, were like the, like the boys' schools, but they were also had some kind of feminist imperative about educating girls. So they're a bit different, but basically in the same model. Did, are there co-educational um, British public schools? There are now. They weren't before, but increasingly they've been going co-ed. Some of the boys' schools... Um, when I say they've increasingly been going co-ed, that's the boys' schools have gone co-ed. The girls' schools have remained girls' schools. The, um, they've been ad admitting uh, 
girls initially mostly only at the in sixth form, the top end, top two last two years of schooling, uh, and then some of them have been admitting them further down the school as well. Um, yeah, so so there are a good number which are now co-ed. And certainly in, in, in other countries, um, s- several of them are co-ed, but not all. I did want to ask about these different countries. I mean, I mean the, the British Empire expanded over many parts of the world. Um, and this model was found in a lot of these um, colonies. But were there were there differences between the way these schools looked in the different countries that um, where the British Empire was? Yes, there were, um, because they're always uh, nuanced or changed by local and national imperatives as well. So um, if you think so the there's a sort of basic structure to the way the schools are organized and and their values, but they also have to do something that makes them appropriate to that country. So, for example, in in India, the um, the schools were set up to support and create an Indian aristocracy which would rule India uh, in a British kind of way. So, if that makes sense. So, uh, they were to have a, a British education as close to what they would have got if they sent the kids to Eton or Harrow or the boys to Eton or Harrow or any of those schools. And, of course, people like Nehru did go to those schools. Um, and, but in, 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 in Africa, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, which is basically where, where the British Empire was to a large extent, um, they were much more about, uh, making sure the colonists had the ability to govern the natives, uh, in Australia and, New Zealand, they were about getting refining the settlers, who, as as you'll know, um, many of the settlers in Australia were originally convicts and very working class origins, but uh, as they became settled and gained money, power, and so on, then those schools were set up to to help the settlers become more civilized. Um, so it's, it was different in each of the different colonies, depending a bit on the different form that colonization took in those places. And, and has the purpose of these schools changed over time now that the British Empire obviously is not around any longer? Yes, it, it has, because, because this, um, the national uh, issues have become different and have changed. So now in the 21st century and to since, certainly since the sort of 1990s, the effect of globalisation has meant that these schools are 
part of a neoliberal um, network of schools which are sharing different different approaches to to learning and to teaching, some of which come from corporations like Microsoft, and they have international organisations. There's one called the G20, which is a G20 of of the best schools in the world. Um, it has actually got more than 20 schools in it, but they still call it the G20. Um, you know, and there are various organisations which are regional and some which are based on some kind of religious foundation. One that's very big and influential is called Round Square, and quite a lot of them are in there. And then, so the one in South Africa was in Round Square, and the one in Australia was in Round Square, and so on. So, What is Round Square? Round Square is an organisation of schools based on the ideas of a chap called Kurt Hahn, who was um, German, as you would guess from the name, um, and he he had these um, principles which he called the seven pillars of these schools, and they were all about, you know, well, the, the, the first one, I think it was the first one, was about um, teaching the children of the privileged to use their privilege wisely. That's not how he put it. We've got the quote actually in the book somewhere, but um, I can't remember the exact quote. But basically that was, you know, and, and the phrase that he used was about bearing the burden of privilege and exercising that burden responsibly. Um, so the, a lot of the service stuff comes from Round Square. And then there's Cross of Nails, which is specifically Christian, as you would guess. Um, so a lot of these schools belong to more than one of these organisations. So there's a regional one, there's an Asian one, and, and so on and so forth. And they uh, operate in different ways with exchanges of students, exchanges of staff, meetings for principals, um, and, and the Microsoft um, project, which you can find on the web, on the Microsoft website, is huge. And it's about rewarding schools for technical, um, for educating in a, in, in a particular way, which is also very stress, uh, stress, I was going to say stressful. I guess it is quite stressful, but in which the stress is very much on IT, as you would imagine, and developing those kinds of skills and sciences. So, yeah, so that's... Um, so, I, so it seems that the, the schools obviously have changed as the times have changed and perhaps are now embracing more of this neoliberal kind of global capitalism. But are there things that have stayed the same? Because, I mean, in, in some senses, these schools that have such a long history they would presumably pride themselves on that sort of tradition, that, yeah. that constant, that status quo. Absolutely. Absolutely. This tradition is incredibly important to them as well. So the organisation of the schools, the traditions they have go back a long way. And, and the, the dance they have to do, we call the book Class Choreographies, as you know, is partly about 
the dance between tradition and innovation and how do you make innovation look traditional and how do you make tradition look innovatory? Um, How do you do that? What are some examples? So, well, if you take, if you take the notion of excellence and always increasing excellence, which is a very, you know, it's there in public schools, in government schools as well, that uh, all over the world, it's there with the OECD and so on, that um, we've always got to be excellent, we've always got to be more excellent than we were. Um, But for these schools, you know, they can claim that they've always been based in excellence, that they've always had that tradition of a really excellent education. And then there are other things like you know, the the emphasis on sport in a lot of these schools. It's uh, it's is quite phenomenal how much that, you know, and the, the the sound body and the sound mind that that kind of tradition goes on. Um, most of the schools still provide a classics at least in the form of Latin, um, if not Greek. Um, as one of the subjects that they would teach. But, you know, they've moved on as well in terms of other languages. So, yeah, so they've got, they have both. Um, they hold on to the tradition and they, they use the tradition. They have these amazing coats of arms with, you know, the semiotics of the eagle and the lion and the griffin and these are these are there and their pictures are around of you know the head teachers going going way back when um in the south african school uh there was when we were there in 2012 the they had an exhibition about um I think it must have been 150 years of the school, and and they had a they had these banners with each decade illustrated by world events and local events and school events. So, and it was quite interesting to see what what went into those world events because in in the early 19th century. Um, you know, South Africa was the Cape Colony, as it was then. There were wars going on with, with black people, which are not mentioned at all as a local happening, you know. So it's, it's like all history, selective. But, the, you know, in, as you go later on, like there's visits from royalty to the school mentioned and this sort of thing. And so it would be the history, the historical memory is selective to advance certain interests or ideas yeah. o- over others? Absolutely. And, you know, history is the history of the present, as we know. All history is the history of the present. So, so yeah, so they, the histories are to advance a certain image, a certain brand, if you like, um, and certain ideas of particularly um, 
well, particularly if you look at South Africa and Australia, but in England too, um, I think it's most striking in South Africa because the change there has been so recent. The history of, you know, this school has always been tolerant. This school has always been on the right side of history. Um, but there's also, you know, slave remains were found under the school when they were doing building work. So, not, you know, um, uh, certain objects that would have been used by slaves, and these are presented, you know, as if the slaves had, because it was on the slave route, as if the slaves would have had leisure time in which they could do their cooking and their, their what have you. And so it's, um, so it's, it's, it's kind of interesting the way the histories are put together. And if you look, who, sorry. I, I was going to ask, who does the putting together? Who is the, who are the people in these schools that are constructing the narrative in that, in that way to kind of, you know, whitewash history in South Africa? Well, some of them are, uh, you know, there's a school archivist. I mean, the particular school in South Africa had, before we were there, although we met her, a head teacher who was indeed very involved with the liberation struggle. So it was kind of complicated, but that gave an extra oomph to that way of doing the history. Um, so, but there's also people who write histories of these schools, which we talk about in um, chapter one, I think, of the book, and about how very often these histories are written in terms of uh, the wonderful head, the hagiographies of the head teachers and the great roles the schools played. So, and often those histories are written by alumni of the school who are, in a sense, in bigging up the school or also bigging themselves up. Let's, let's go into some of these schools that you've worked in with this team of researchers. What is it like to be a student at these schools? Uh, there's, I think it varies a bit. Well, it varies quite a bit from school to school. Um, they live in a kind of... Now, I'm tempted to say bubble, but we've spoken about this a lot in the team, about it's not really a bubble, it's... Because you... You can't burst it that easily. I can't. I can't think of the right word at the moment. A, a, a cage. It's. It's. it's <laughs> well, if it's a cage, it's a gilded cage. But it's. 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 There's a kind of. They would recognise. They would agree that they were privileged, but they would not recognise what that means, if that makes sense. So, for example, we we showed. In all the schools, we, when we were asking the students about their values and the values they learned from the school, in um, in one-to-one interviews, we found that they just gave us the answers which they, which were the right answers. You know, 
yes, we, we really work hard on our service staff and we, we're very sympathetic to poor people and we need to help those poor people in India or where, wherever they're not, um, and so on. Um, and we go and do the service work and, and so on. So we, we thought we needed a different way in. So then in the second round we had focus groups and we showed the students videos from the Occupy movement which had been which was happening or had just happened at the time. And um and we we chose a YouTube from their own country and we got them to talk about it. And the responses that came back, with with exceptions, um, but the majority of responses that came back were very much about, well, you know, they're not, they're, they're not protesting about anything that that they couldn't do something about. It's their own choice, not to, you know, they could get jobs if they wanted to, and that sort of stuff, which you you also find. You know, in the media sometimes, you certainly do in, in this country. Um, and, the, and there were exceptions. There were more politicised students. But on the whole, there was a kind of blindness to what was going on. There, there's one, one, one young woman I remember in, in, in South Africa, and I asked her... The, the South African white students were very angry about the local universities having quotas uh, for uh, pre what they used to call, what they still call previously disadvantaged groups. Um, it's, 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 it's like, you know, black kids, basically. And they thought they were they would go on and on about how unfair it was because, you know, they weren't responsible for apartheid. They were born after the after ninety four, and they could have the same results as a black kid. They could have had the same education, in the same schools, as a black kid. But the black kid could get preference for them from, at one of the elite South African universities, Cape Town or Witwatersrand or so on. And they thought that was terribly unfair. And there was really no recognition of the history. And I, so I said to, to them, well, you know, what do, what do the black people think about that? And this one girl came back and she said, well, I don't really know any black people to speak to, so I don't know. White girl, obviously. Um, and so, I mean, first of all, it was something she hadn't discussed with the black kids in her school, of, of which there were very few local black kids. Most of the black kids in that school were from the elites from countries further north in Africa. Um, but, you know, ev every, virtually every manual worker in the school, and there were many, whether they were doing the grounds or whether they were cooking or cleaning, whatever they were doing, they were black. Or 
what Americans would call people of colour. In South Africa, they still have the same uh, classifications, racial classifications, as apartheid had. Um, so black-coloured Indian or, or white. Um, so, so she hadn't spoken to those people. She didn't recognise them as people who might have an opinion. She hadn't spoken to the black servants that worked in her home. You know, she just, it was like she lived in this place where certain groups of people were invisible. She had blinkers on. Yeah, she did. They were there, but they were invisible. They made the world go round. They made the school operate. They sat at the gate and were security guards or they beautified the gardens and and they they just didn't see it. And similarly, in other schools, they all had, obviously, manual workers, um, you know, cooks, cleaners, maintenance people and so on, who were largely invisible. I mean, the same thing in... um, in Hong Kong, where where um, the there was a church school that we looked at in Hong Kong, and the and they had a a, a, a priest um, uh, an RE teacher who was a minister, I think, uh, working there, uh, a, a vicar, I guess. Um, not absolutely sure about that, but anyway, he was. He was um, he was teaching religion, and he had uh, told off a boy for letting the Filipino maid carry his heavy bags, and and what he told uh, the researcher there, who was who was Joe Fay, Johanna Fay. Uh, was that um, what happened? Was that what what was that he got told? He the parents complained about him for telling the child off. So so there was this just assumption that that it would be okay that you that that it was okay to treat people like this that you couldn't because you couldn't see them as people. And even in in cases where they said, oh, well, the servants are like members of the family, you know, we're really close to them, the servants didn't sit at the same table and eat their dinner with them. You know, it wasn't... You wouldn't have a member of your family there who didn't sit down with you when you sat down to eat. So what they meant by member of the family was not what most people would mean. So it's, I mean, it seems like that some of the students that obviously came from privileged backgrounds and entered schools like this, it just reinforced a lot of the ideas they probably grew up with. Yeah. But then, but then it also seems like you have students who, you know, quote unquote, local students, those who perhaps didn't grow up in privilege, but are attending those schools attending the elite schools. It sounds like those students, that must be a very difficult experience for students like that. It is. I mean, 
partly because there's so few of them, because although all these schools have scholarships, the scholarships don't, don't necessarily mean that they don't uh, pay any fees. So, again, if you look at the Eaton website, which is exemplary from this point of view, um, it says a, a boy with a scholarship will never have to pay more than 90% of the fees. So the fees are significantly more than the median household income in this country. So if you're paying 90% of them, that's still a good deal more than the median household income. So there will be a very few uh, children who, who loom large in the school's imaginary who are on full scholarships. And we did speak to some of those kids and they did talk to us about the burden of representation it put on them um, and how they felt everybody was watching them all the time and that if they slipped up, if they didn't do their homework, if they, you know, if they played up in any way, then it would be much worse for them than it would be for the regular kids. Now, whether that was true or not, that's what they experienced. When I say whether it was true or not, whether it was true that the school was looking at them more because there's a lot of anxiety in these schools and particularly in the girls' schools anyway. Um, so, yeah, so it was... There was quite a big burden on these, on these kids. On the other hand, I mean, this is not part of the research, except that I watched it because, because we were doing the research. BBC, Children's BBC put on a, they do some mini documentaries called Our Life, and they did a mini-series of three about some working-class kids or regular kids from comprehensive schools who've got full scholarships to Eton. And they were very knowing about it, if you like. They were, like, you saw one... First of all, you saw them being fitted out with their uniforms, which are these tailcoats, and you know what I mean by tailcoats. You know, you, you can see pictures of them on the, on the Eton website, if you don't know. Um, and they were being fitted out, and you could see them embodying... Eaten as they were dressed up by the tailor in these clothes and the way they had to be taught to sit down by putting the tails of their coats behind them so that they weren't sitting on them and that sort of, you know, there was a kind of clear lesson in embodiment going on. And one of them on the way to school said, you know, I'm going to Eton and my children won't need scholarships. I'm going to Eton on a scholarship set. My children won't need scholarships. So, you know, I mean, that, that as I said, wasn't from the research project except peripherally because I watched it out of interest. And I was quite shocked that the BBC would actually do that bit of advertisement for Eton. So, so it seems like these, these schools are obviously preparing students to become part of that elite class, you know? I mean, it seems like it's a very class, uh, 
making project that these schools are a part of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very much a class making project, and it's um, you know, and again, it's it's slightly differently nuanced in in the different countries. Um, it's partly to do with the world they inhabit and and the resources they have in terms of making making class identities um, so that they can develop a kind of sense of entitlement. And it's partly to do with the networks, the social capital they develop in those schools and through those schools. It's partly the chances of cosmopolitanism in the sense that they do they do a lot of travel, those kids, um, and again, of course, that's different for the scholarship kids because they have to raise they have to find a way to raise the money because the those trips are funded by parents; they're not funded by the school. Singapore's a bit different. Singapore does a lot of funding itself of of things, but it's a very rich school. Um, so in, in Singapore, you know, there's a, there's a national project about bringing people of talent to the island nation and, and they have scholarships for the brightest kids and very good scholarships for the brightest kids in the independent schools in the whole of the Pacific Rim. Um, and the hope is that they'll come to Singapore and they'll add to the national economy, they'll live in Singapore, or they'll be ambassadors for Singapore. Um, so, and that's quite explicit in Singapore. That's absolutely explicit. And in England, there's just, you know, because we looked at a girls' school in England, it's not so much that they're necessarily going to be the rulers themselves, but they'll know how to be married to them. They'll know how to be Kate Middleton. Uh, but also there is a kind of, a sort of lean-in feminist agenda, if you like, uh, about, you know, we can do, you can do anything, you, know, you should do what you can do. So there is an expectation now that they will have careers, um, which of course originally the expectation was that they would be wives and helpmeets to their to their politician or local governor or whatever husbands. Um, so there's still some of that in the girls' schools, but it's but that's much more as you would expect nowadays about about you know being able to go to university and to have your own career. Um, in a way that it wouldn't have been uh, when the school started. So, so that kind of changes a bit over, the, over time. But there was always, there was always a, a kind of feminist agenda for the girls' schools of, you know, the girls needed to be educated. They needed to have the same subjects as the boys. They needed to be able to do those things.
With all of the, you know, the students that are obviously coming from different countries and moving to these schools for the education and all the international trips that these people are doing, uh, or all the students that are they're able to go on, is this class-making project that these elite schools are part of, is it in a way making class above the nation-state or beyond the nation-state? Because class is normally thought about in national terms, like there's a uh, an elite class in the UK, and you know these are people who end up becoming judges and uh, MPs and things like that. But is there is there this transnational capitalist class um, forming through these schools? I think there is, and I think it's um, I think it's both actually. I think it's both because. Particularly, um, okay, so let's do it country by country. In South Africa, they don't have the students from all over the world except as exchange students for a few weeks or maybe a term at the most. What they do have is a a number of students who come from English-speaking countries further north. And... In the, in, the, in the scale of um, elite, South Africa is one of the less elite of the elite schools, although it's elite in South Africa. However, the very rich in South Africa, the mine owners, would be more likely to send their children to a British or an American school. The... The kids who come from China and particularly from Hong Kong often come either with parents who are travelling because they're senior executives in some kind of international corporation or because the uh, there's a quite deliberate decision and one of the girls in in Highbury Hall which is the school in England talked to us quite openly about this and she said you know we I my parents wanted me to be able to work both in the east and the west so I had uh, my education in in Hong Kong and then when I when I reached 16 I've come here to England, and so now I can operate in both, and I can go to a British elite university, and and so, um, so that's going on in Singapore. A huge number. They've got, I think, the biggest entry of any school in the world to Oxford and to Harvard. That may, that may not be quite right as as biggest, but they have a very large number of uh, boys who go on to one of those elite universities. Um, on the other hand, not all the kids, you know, it's a bit of a, it's part of the publicity that, you know, that's how you get into an elite university. And a lot of the kids don't end up going to those universities and have to go to the second or even the third tier when they do go to university. So, so 
they're very intensively prepared and hot-housed for entry to the university. So at, um, at Highbury Hall, they have academics come in who... Ox- admission to Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge, is, is um, still done through inter- interviews which doesn't happen at most universities. Um, and, and so they have practice interviews and they keep on practicing having interviews with these academics who come in who are maybe parents of kids at the school or academics that are known to them in some other way. Maybe they pay them. I don't know whether they get paid or not, but they come in and they do trial interviews with these kids and the kids can do three or four until they they really know what to, what to produce in the interviews. And they also have an American there who used to be uh, an academic in the States and um, left and came to the UK, I'm not sure why, um, and he has a full-time job preparing students who want to go to an, to an Ivy League university to do their SATs, which the entrance exams for those universities. Um, so it varies from school to school. Like, again, in South Africa, they really didn't know how you got a kid into Oxford or Cambridge because their sites were set at local universities, at particularly Cape Town, but also... Uh, Witwatersrand, you know, uh, because because these are the local elite universities. Um, in you know, but but one of the Tanzanian girl, a Tanzanian girl who had wanted to go to a British university, ended up at a university in India. Um, so. There's a, there, there is some truth, but there's also a lot of puff in the, in the um, claim that, you know, this is a surefire way of going to an elite university and getting on in life. And, so, yeah, so, and there are particular sets of universities that they want to go to, and clearly not all of them make it. Well, it really is an interesting uh, class dance that is going on with this um, multi-sided ethnography that you have been a part of. Um, So, Debbie Epstein, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure to talk. Well, thank you. Thank you for interviewing me. I found it fun and interesting. Debbie Epstein is a professor of cultural studies and education at the University of Roehampton. Her latest co-written book is Class Choreographies, Elite Schools and Globalization. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. If you like what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zung. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. 
I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.